Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a comedian. I am a man who will fight a grizzly bear. I feel like you were thinking of that as you were slowly speaking. I so had memories could... of the times I fought grizzly bears, and that's I meant why. you were you were thinking of what to say, but well, sure, no, I mean, too. I mean, you know, Josh. Is a man who will fight a grizzly bear a kind of person? Normally, there are kinds of people. Um, there are there are there is a kind of person who will fight a grizzly bear, you? and you are that kind of person. <laughs> you don't want to know any more than that. I mean. You are not, however, the kind of person who will win in said fight. But... If it was a cub, I might. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I bet I could take out a grizzly cub. Okay, well, let's, let's hope we never find out. Yeah. Speaking of animal cruelty, let's talk about this film, which yes. features a woman bashing a bunny's head in with it a lead pipe. sure does. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1989. And in this episode, we're talking about our documentary pick for the year, which is Michael Moore's Roger and Me that does, in fact, feature some bunny cruelty. And human and lots and lots, lots of human cruelty. Lots of human misery, as well as bunny misery, but also lots of humor. Lots of humor. Yeah. Uh, this is it's interesting. I was thinking about this, that, you know, we have an episode, which is the filmmaking debut. And we talked about Cameron Crowe's Say Anything, but this is actually the third filmmaking debut that we've covered in this season after right, that and Steven, Steven Soderbergh. Soderbergh. Yeah. 1989, hot year for rookie filmmakers. It was indeed. And uh, this movie, Michael Moore's Roger and Me, was hugely successful for a documentary. Oh, hugely successful, as in the most successful documentary of all time up to this point, theatrically? Um, yes. Okay. Exactly that. <laughs> Go on. In then. fact, <laughs> it grossed $7.7 million on a budget of $140,000. And was, in fact, the most successful documentary in history at the time, surpassed only later somewhere. by more Michael Moore movies. It uh, premiered at the Telluride Film Festival and uh, played several big film festivals. It was not, however, nominated for the uh, Oscar for Best Documentary, but did win a bunch of awards for Best Documentary from various critics groups, as well as the International Documentary Association. It won the People's Choice Awards at the Toronto Film Festival. And was generally very highly acclaimed. Hey, speaking of film festivals. Yes. As we speak, this film that we all worked on, Rick Thunder and Look Back Tomorrow, was accepted to the Shambhal International Film Festival season four. India, here we come. That's so, that's not relevant. We can take that out. <laughs> real time, real time, real time stuff. That's, I'm glad that that happened. But I, I think this movie got screwed out of an Oscar nomination. Right, yeah, it did. You're I mean, and about I, Rick Thunder, yeah, <laughs> Roger and Rick me did Thunder get, and me, yeah, Rick Thunder and me, that's yeah. it, yeah. Roger and me did get screwed out of an Oscar nomination. I think you're not the only one who thought that, and I feel like we've talked about a bunch of documentaries and and other, you know, in these kind of niche categories where they missed the Oscar nominations and people were outraged by it. Much like the old white guys in Roger and me, the old white guys in the Academy. Just don't seem to get it. They don't. That is true. And, uh, of course, they they made up for it, you could argue, later with Michael Moore, who certainly has been nominated for and won Oscars. And I think he deserved those. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yourself. What are you? Some type of Oscar Academy guy now? I am an Oscar Academy guy. That is. You so ever true. fight a grizzly bear? I have not. I could bash its head in with an Oscar, maybe. Um, it was. Uh, despite not being nominated for an Oscar, it was very well reviewed. It got two thumbs up uh, from Siskel and Ebert, uh, and it was on Ebert's top ten list. Uh, although he didn't write a full review of it, so I have some other reviews to quote from. Hal Hinson in the Washington Post said, Roger and me, Michael Moore's documentary about the effects of General Motors plant closings in his hometown of Flint, Michigan, is a hilariously cranky bit of propaganda. One part home movie, one part editorial, one part letter bomb. The film is a one man insurrection. And imagine that the man is just some yob with a movie camera, an auto worker's son who has never made a film before and who sees in the demise of his home city the perfect metaphor for everything that's gone wrong with America. The result is one of the most subversively comic political films in memory. And uh, yeah, I think it's funny to see all these references to Michael Moore as this sort of rube, who is, which is like the opposite of the way that, that people perceive him now. Do you think they meant it as like that? Or do you think they meant it as in like, they know he's just playing that? No, I mean, I think they meant it at the time. Yeah. Um, and I think it was not necessarily wrong at the time, although before this, he wasn't just some, you know, local yokel or whatever. He'd been a journalist for yeah, 10 plus as, years. As we learned, he started his own newspaper slash magazine that he ran for 10 years. So. Yeah. And then after that, he was hired to be the editor of Mother Jones, which is still a very well-known uh, progressive publication. Uh, and that did not work out for him. But he certainly was uh, an activist and a, a guy who knew about journalistic practices it kind of did work out for him because he sued mother jones uh for wrongful termination and part of that settlement went to financing this film yeah it worked out better for him to not be the editor of, of mother jones but i mean that position is not one that he ended up holding on to is what i mean um but this i think was a far better thing for him to have this is a far far better thing so true uh, <laughs> peter rayner in the la times said Documentaries have such a terrible reputation with audiences for being boring and, quote, good for you, that the pesky folk humor of Michael Moore's Roger and Me is almost startling. This movie about the effect of auto plant closures in Flint, Michigan, the birthplace of General Motors, is being touted as a documentary for people who don't like documentaries, and that's not far wrong. More to the point, it's a documentary for people who are unaccustomed to how entertaining documentaries can be. All the best ones are. The jokiness in Roger and Me isn't simply in the movie to relieve boredom. The film is a piece of cockeyed outrage, and the black comedy arises naturally, inevitably, from the seriousness of the situation. And I think that's something maybe that Michael Moore lost later on, is that he got caught up in the idea that his, he was supposed to be funny, and it didn't always come about organically. Interesting. An interesting take, Josh. Yeah. One so, that but, you... I mean, you know, like, uh, if we're going to look at, like, Bowling for Columbine as maybe the height of uh, uh, his success. Yeah, yeah. That that comedy, I thought that comedy worked really well. So then maybe, I guess it would be after that it became a little more manufactured. Although that had some manufactured stuff. Too. Right. Well, I mean, he's always manufactured things. Um, but I guess I'm just thinking of he got maybe uh, became a slave to the expectations of what people think of a Michael Moore movie being, and that were all kind of established by this movie. Yeah. Uh, not a slave to love. No, like Brian Ferry. No, slave not. to love. Thank you. Uh, and so I mean, and and to that point, 
some of the criticisms, the most common criticisms of Michael Moore movies did come up when this came out, although they weren't uh, as frequent. But uh, Dave Keir in the Chicago Tribune said, the value of Roger and me lies in Moore's realization that political filmmaking doesn't have to be dull and puritanical, that even a documentary can entertain. And Roger and me is undeniably a diverting experience. It's very funny and at times exhilaratingly so. But when real life tragedy is used as a basis for movie comedy, some consideration of responsibility has to enter the equation. Roger Smith has used the people of Flint for his own ends, but so, in a way that's different mainly in degree, has Michael Moore. Yeah, but Michael Moore was able to uh, use their stories to shine a light on those stories. Right. So, I mean, um, the effectiveness of his storytelling is because he's able to reach such a wide audience with that type of story. Yeah, I think so. I just want, I, I think in this movie, maybe more than in others, because there people didn't come into this movie with as many preconceived notions that he was really able to shine a light on a problem and actually able to open people's eyes to it in a legitimate way. And so that criticism is maybe a little less valid here. But I, I mean, I just kind of wanted to point out that some of the things that people now often say about Michael Moore, even at the time there were questions about, and you know, what, what has been staged and how has he kind of edited things together to look a certain way and all that. Stuff. Yeah. But he's even said in this film, like these were snippets throughout the eighties. It's not a linear story. Right. And when he, we know he goes for maximum emotional impact for his own uh, storytelling purposes. So um, I think all of that is true, but um and I can see, like, in 1989, like, this is almost, like, revolutionary, right? This yeah, I mean, almost. I don't think you need to say this is revolutionary. So there you go. It's a totally uh, new type of documentary making. And, um, you know, the idea of really subjective documentary making. And like you said, uh, moving pieces around to enhance your narrative. Like, he is so effective at that. Yeah, he really is. And I think I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with all those criticisms, or at least not necessarily with regards to this movie. I think doing that, that putting those pieces together in that particular way is the way that he gets the message across is the reason that people paid attention and the way that he does to whatever degree that he did help the people of Flint. He does it because he's able to entertain an audience and get them on the side of those people. And Michael Moore himself says that this movie is a failure because he did not, uh, he did not help jumpstart anything in Flint based right. on this. No, he definitely did. But not. I bet if you look at Flint now, he's like, eh. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't so bad. Yeah, they yeah. could drink water at least. So. Right. <laughs> Any other uh, statistical uh, tidbits that you uh, uh, wanted to bring up? One National Board Review, Best Documentary. We know that. Yeah, it won a ton of Best Documentary awards in various places. Yeah, um, I found it interesting that he could not have the premiere of this film in Flint, Michigan, because there were no movie theaters left as we. Right. As it points out at the it, very so. end of the credits. Yeah. Uh, Moore himself was on welfare while making this movie, which was he mortgaged his house and used his settlement to make it and was getting $98 a week for this. I thought that was good. I like the uh, working title, a humorous look at how general motors destroyed Flint, Michigan. <laughs> and we know that general motors, not a fan of this film so much so that they threatened to pull ads of any TV show that interviewed Michael Moore. So yeah, good people running that company back then. Right. As, uh, as this movie makes 
makes very clear. So yeah, I think that that statistic about Michael Moore shows that even though he did obviously have a lot of experience as a journalist, he was a legitimate underdog when he made this movie in a way that he isn't anymore. He's definitely not now. Yeah. So we can, uh, well, I guess the other thing is, had you seen this before? I had seen it. Uh, I think I was just kind of, I don't remember when, but I was just trying to catch up. On, I must have been after bowling for Columbine, trying to catch up on all the the old more Michael Moore documentaries, but I didn't really remember it. Yeah, I had done, I had watched it probably for the same reason as you. I think I saw Bowling for Columbine before having seen this. And, you know, it was an important film to catch up with. Um, I remembered some, I mean, some aspects like the the bunny slaughter are, are pretty memorable. I think I had, those had stuck in my mind. But yeah, all the details uh, I hadn't necessarily uh, retained. But I remember, you know, I mean, thinking it was good at the time that I saw it and I mean, removed, obviously, in both of our cases from like the urgency of the issue. But right. I think it that's one thing is that it still holds up as a movie. There are a lot of, especially now, like documentaries that are about urgent thing happening right now. And you watch that movie a year later and it's there's nothing. to Right. It. Well, that's 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 one of the sad things is like you're watching this and they're like, oh, damn, this could be today. And like we said, even worse today. Right. So, yeah. Um, I remember, you know, going to the video store and like the cool picks. I don't know if it was a staff pick, but you'd always see like this box next to Slacker or something like right. that. Right. This was part of that indie. I mean, even though it's a very different kind of movie. Rage it was, Against the Machine type thing. Yeah. Part of an indie film uh, boom in that era, you know, between this and Sex, Lies and Videotape. It's uh, two, two strands of that indie film movement in a way. What an awesome movie year. What an awesome movie year. So let's come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Roger and me. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about our documentary pick, Michael Moore's Roger and Me, which uh, is good. Really good. Yeah. Yeah, still. And it, like it holds up on every level. Like we we've already mentioned, like, Sadly, it holds up from a, a standpoint of reality, but the the humor is still good. The subversion is still good. And uh, the storytelling, I think, is still good. Yeah, I think this is a movie that holds up cinematically, too. And that's right. something that documentaries often don't at all, even in the moment that they're first released, that Michael Moore really is a filmmaker here. He's not just a journalist. He's not just a guy giving you facts about something that, he feels is important yeah it's you know we had mentioned that he was the like you had just said he's a, he was a journalist this is almost like you could see a guy finding his calling yeah with this film yeah and uh and 7.7 million dollars later i think he agreed <laughs> he did yeah i mean and it's interesting to see him sort of discovering that style as he's making this movie which is something that's now very familiar to us if we've seen any of his other films or any of the many many films that imitate him but at the time, this wasn't a way that people had made documentaries. And he's kind of, I, I don't know, maybe maybe searching for how to approach this movie and, and really hitting on some of these things that worked out so well for him that he would keep going back to again and again in his later movies. Yep. And, um, you know, it's not the legacy section, but you do wonder if he's going to get, you know, he's done so many political things now. Like, he's going to get back to telling, like, everyday stories, kind of like he did with uh, uh, the... The one about healthcare. What was that? Oh yeah, sicko. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I think that's one of the reasons also that this movie works so well is that it's clearly a personal story for him, that it's not just he's inserting himself personally into a current issue or a political story. It starts with home movies of him as a child, and he grew up in this town. His family is affected. He made this movie because he, it was so important to him, and that comes across really well. And some of the people that he interviews who are being evicted are like old high school classmates or old friends. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, I mean, it's not the same. But I remember when um, I had gotten off the road for comedy and came back to Vegas and it was right when the recession was like at its worst and we were at like 10% hotel occupancy. And I worked by going from hotel to hotel to do some marketing and it was so stark. So you can only imagine like what it would be like if a whole town is losing its main industry. I mean, that's, that's just harrowing. And um, in, in this movie, they say, you know, Reagan came to town and he gave him this great advice, go live somewhere else and do another job. Cause thanks a lot, Reagan, you know, classic right there. Um, and you could just be like, man, these guys just don't get it. Like, how do you do that with no, you don't have the money to pay your rent. How are you going to get somewhere else and get another job? Yeah. He did buy them pizza though. Right. Reagan. <laughs> did he, or did <laughs> he, they just give he him? He did. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But I think for me, one of the reasons why Michael Moore is not annoying in this movie, as he can be sometimes, is because it feels more genuine. Well, he does such a good job of showing you what Flint, Michigan is, right? You're you're looking at the um the auto company, you know, the plants, and then he's going, there's so many rich suburbs of there. Gross point this, gross point yeah, that, right? Yeah. So you're in a yacht club. Or you're at uh, a great Gatsby style party and you're just, and then the next scene is, again is like seeing someone get uh, evicted from a very low um, income neighborhood. So he does a great job of showing what the, how stark the differences are in, in his town. Yeah. And I think that's part of the filmmaking talent on display here is that he puts this footage together in a way that, makes it very clear he's really good at juxtaposing those different things. I mean, there's a, that great sequence uh, where he plays uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys as he's uh, driving along the rows and rows of these boarded up, dilapidated houses. And I mean, you could say that that's maybe a little easy contrast. Well, it's also relevant because he didn't just pick the song right right the interviewee who he was talking to had said that he had left he had just quit, walked off the line at the factory and he couldn't take it anymore and he was like crying on his way home and the beach boys wouldn't it be nice came on yeah yeah he may i mean there's a reason for it i'm saying that that sequence works i feel like something like that could come across as being heavy-handed but I feel like, and, and maybe does in other Michael Moore movies later, but I feel like he balances that well. And like you say, he connects it to this personal story from this auto worker that he's just shown and then brings in this pop song and contrasts it with the result of the plants being shut down. And it gives you this really full picture that is beyond just someone saying, oh, there's a bunch of dilapidated houses or whatever. That it's not, this is not in any way a talking head documentary. It is not about the talking heads. No, no. I knew you were going to say that. That would be stop making sense. Yes. Um, 
But I mean, the kind of documentary I feel like that we get a lot about social issues where it's like, here's an expert telling us some statistics. Here's a person affected by it, but we're just sitting there listening to them talk. And this movie is out and about. I mean, you can criticize Michael Moore's techniques, but he is always like on the ground, on the front lines, pushing to show what's really going on here. And I, I think criticizing his techniques here, uh, you can't win. You can't win if that's what you're doing because the results have shown, you know, the, the, the polls are over, Josh. The vote is in. Everyone, he won. He won this one. Yeah, I mean, he became very successful. I think it's not unfair to say that he does in this movie, like he does in a lot of his other movies, bother a bunch of people who really have no position to help him. Yeah, but they're just rich white people. So who no, cares? no, I'm not talking about those people. Those people deserve to be bothered. I'm talking about when he goes into a building and he's arguing with a security guard who's just some minimum wage nobody who can't get him what he wants. But he's just, he's... He's so polite about it that it's like you don't feel like he's really accosting them either. I mean, I I feel like you could argue that he is making those people part of the butt of the joke, along with the entitled rich people who deserve to be the butt of the joke. And I mean, that's, I think, something that Michael Moore and less so in this movie. I feel like in this movie, at least you can always understand what the purpose is. He's in this building trying to see Roger Smith. This is literally the person who's keeping him out. And I think sometimes later on, he goes and finds random people and you're like, what do they have to do with this issue? And why is he yelling at them? Um, I mean, he does kind of bother Miss America at one point or the Miss Michigan. I don't think, I mean, he was very calm to her too. He's calm, but at the same time, he's putting her on the spot and he's using her in the movie as an example of someone who should have an answer. And and she's not, she, she has no figure, but she has no bearing on the, closures in Michigan or whether they could what, what if she's able to she can't do anything about it well you wouldn't guess that probably by her answers in the Miss America pageant you know they're always going to strive for world peace and every kid getting an education right I mean that's what but you you know that a Miss America contestant is just going to give you a bunch of platitudes no matter what you ask I about. thought he really used the Michigan based celebrities well, you know, and all the ones who were born in Flint, Bob Eubanks. Yeah, you know. Bob Eubanks really, uh, I don't feel bad for him because really uh, uh, entirely unrelated to the plant closures, Bob Eubanks just totally, you know, hangs himself there <laughs> yeah. with his his sexist, racist jokes. Yeah, you're right. Host of the uh, newlywed game. Yes. Uh, he would have been thrown off the air for those jokes today. He definitely would have. And I would not have felt that that was unjustified, really. Right. I mean, and he is so eager to tell these horribly offensive and not funny jokes. But what I think you get is uh, with, and maybe less with Bob Eubanks, but with definitely like Pat Boone and Anita Bryant and Reagan and, you know, all these guys. Reagan, who's not in, by the way. No. Uh, but like this whole idea of like, hey. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. This is America. Anyone can do anything. I was born to a rich family, but don't worry. Anyone can do anything, you know? Yeah. Like they totally don't understand what these people are going through and how they're like, they're just lives or their ability to make a living wage is just being uh, slaughtered every day. Yeah, I think absolutely Pat Boone and, and Anita Bryant are clearly along the same lines as the people in the country club that they're these out of touch rich white people who 
don't care about the auto workers and don't have anything of value to say. I mean, of course, and both of them are celebrities who are very, very well known for being conservative celebrities. Sure. Um, so it's not surprising that that's what they end up saying. It's definitely not. And, um, you know, if, uh, I don't know, is Anita Bryant still alive? I think Pat Boone is, but I don't think I either. I think Pat them... Boone died a few years ago. Okay, Dave, well, you want to look that up if they're dead, they definitely will not be in a future Michael Moore movie. But I think, uh, you know, later on, neither of them would have ever agreed to be interviewed by, by him, of course. Right. Well, we saw that with the whole Charlton Heston thing and yeah. for Columbine. Yes. Pat Boone's still hanging in there. Hey. Oh, yeah. Maybe he'll be in the next Michael Moore movie. Probably There not. you go. Yeah. And you um, mentioned how Bobby Vinton played the, uh, he opened the season at, uh, at the uh, Flint Arts Theater. Right. And I had, I had once seen my grandfather open for Bobby Vinton. So that was nice. Oh, for me, yeah. So. Good, good memory there. I did like that the head of the, the, <laughs> the theater, arts theater who hilarious. was just so excited <laughs> yeah. about all of these, you know, sort of corny, old timey celebrities who even are corny and old timey in 1989. Right. And the factory workers, they come out and they love them. Yes. <laughs> you know, so. And there's a clip of him in the, like in the credits or towards the end where he, he says something about like, oh, it's so exciting to have you guys here. You're yeah. really capturing. And I'm pretty sure that guy thought he was in a documentary about the Flint Arts right. Center. Right. It was savvy. You know, uh, what did he say? Who came after Bobby Vinton? It was I don't know. Was it was a Peggy Lee. It might have been like, yeah. Now she didn't have the biggest following, right? But the ones who came out, they were Gaga for her. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And and you think I'm just making up this character? Watch watch the movie. He, yeah. he is a very uh, theatrical gentleman. Yeah, he's a bit of a quirky St. Clair character. And I'm so glad you mentioned quirky St. Clair because I really thought I was watching Waiting for Guffman in the second half of this. When I see you were like, look, our last episode was uh, Baron Boonchausen and yeah. his adventures. You want to talk about a descent into madness? Yeah. The entire town of Flint, Michigan went absolutely fucking crazy with their plans on how to get this town up and running again, right? Yeah, that that Auto World amusement park is the kind of thing that you you wonder how that could possibly. Have I been really real. thought that it was like, what is this? Uh, is this like a Christopher Guest movie or something? Because they first like were like, well, you know what we'll do is we'll be the uh, we'll be the convention capital of Michigan, and it's like um, your town's falling apart, but. We built to Hyatt. It's got uh, the only working escalator in, in the entire <laughs> yeah, town. Yeah, that's you know? a great, I mean, that the only that feels like something out of The Simpsons, you know, where the town all comes out for the only working escalator. <laughs> right, right. And then they're like, well, that didn't work. You know what? Let's build a giant four-block pavilion with restaurants because even though no one's coming, we'll fill these restaurants, and that didn't work. And then you finally get to Auto World, which is an old Six Flags that they remade into uh, like you said, an automobile-based amusement park with the world's largest engine. and But meanwhile, they're showcasing all of these uh, automobile-based attractions as they are gutting the automobile plants in the town. And uh, they also show some of the uh, industrial uh, tourism video, which is hilarious with, yes. the, you know, with, the, with the totally... Uh, naive or you know just the guy who doesn't seem to realize how badly things are going in flint and he asks like one of the ladies who works there like what's the what's the first thing the tourists asked you right like he's gonna get some great answer about flint and she goes well first they ask where's the bathroom that's the first thing that is a ask. great moment <laughs> and, i mean i think all of that stuff speaks to how good michael moore is at capturing these perfect moments and constructing them and the fact that he did spend 
years working on this that, you know, and that one of the criticisms being that the timeline is unclear, but he, you know, gets this really full portrait of the town by spending all that time and being able to put all of those pieces against each other. There was crime had become such a problem in Flint, Michigan, as we learn in this film, that the jails became so overcrowded, they had to build a new jail, which cost you know, another millions and millions of dollars. And that was the only project that was a success. <laughs> yeah, right. And what did they do as a fundraiser for the jail before they opened it for prisoners? They held a fundraiser where uh, you or Dave or anyone in Michigan, any couples. Yeah, Dave, out of touch, rich guy, Dave. <laughs> yeah, could pay $100 and spend a night in jail. And all these like, again, all these like, Guys are and women are dressed up in costumes like I'm a jailbird now, you know? So, yeah. It I've really, never been to jail. I should go to jail for a night, you know, that type of thing. It really is the kind of thing that you think, how, yeah, how could this possibly be true? Like you would write that in a you you would write that in a script, and I would say, no, nah, Jason, that doesn't, no one would believe that. It just kept happening over and over. They just kept upping the ante, and it was like one bad idea after the next this town had. Yes, yes, it really was. Uh, should we talk about the bunny murder? Yeah, I guess. That's not so good. So That was, I mean, in a movie that's serious but also funny, um, that was quite a stark moment there. Where, I mean, we've, we've already talked to this woman who raises rabbits and sells them for pets or meat right. as her great sign uh, notes. And so we know that she's killing these cute little bunnies and, and slaughtering them and selling them for, for meat, but more just interviews her while she's bashes the bunny's head in and skins it and guts it. And you could argue that it's gratuitous, but I think it shows you how desperate people are in this town. I didn't mind that she's selling it for meat or that she's, you know, cleaning it, skinning it. But the fact that she's bashing the bunny's head in and she said like that the health department had been there. I don't think that would be a way that they would allow you to kill a rabbit for. No, for I'm meat. sure not. And she says at one point in this sequence, like, I'm not supposed to be doing this. But yeah. she does it anyway. Yeah, I saw this quote from Michael Moore. How like every everyone was so shocked at that moment, but no one said a word about when the black guy on the street got shot. Right. Which <laughs> they also do show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's how desensitized we are towards right. human on human violence. Exactly. So I feel like that moment is like it's uncomfortable to watch, but that's the point of it. And I feel like it's not a gratuitous thing to include that it is part of the portrait of this town of, of how desperate people are and what they're willing to do in order to survive. Right. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I remember, didn't she say she was going to go be a vet tech? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what she says at hit, the end. You get, can't just hit animals in the head with lead pipes. I mean, I'm sure she wouldn't do that as a vet tech. You know, she's not doing it to be cruel. She's doing it to survive. Just uh, so much crazy stuff in there where all these laid off audio workers, we had mentioned the prisons. So there was like a training program for them to become prison guards or, you know, they couldn't handle working at Taco Bell because of how, how demanding that job was, you know. Right, right. It really does feel like a sort of dystopian thing just in this this town in america you know the kind of thing that you would see in a in a sci-fi movie or something they spent uh however many hundreds of thousands or thousands of dollars to bring in a a tv preacher like a robert schuler who's like a big jimmy swagger type back in the 80s to pray for the economic tide to turn and for the unemployment to stop it's just like you're right like it's it, it, there's literally such a divide between like now what we would call the 1% and yeah. everybody else 
But I think, again, this is 89. This is just kind of like at the end of the 80s, the beginning of that build, right? To where we are now. Right, yeah. I mean, sadly, you could probably find scenes just as as horrifying now i think or worse yeah uh yeah it's gotten it's gotten worse this is that's why i thought like when i was watching them like man this is just as relevant today and uh and that's why we here at awesome movie year picked it josh yes we're so socially conscious um should we talk about more as a as a persona, as a presence on camera? He's not quite as much of an on camera presence. He's more this. of a narrator. Yeah, on this one, and the only that you see him a little like the story never becomes about him, other than hey, he's trying to uh, you know interview Roger Smith, so he kind of has to be in that part. Yeah, um, but yeah, like you see him like um, maybe like you're, you see him in a shot talking to the bunny lady or the the guy whose job it is to uh, give the eviction notices. But yeah, he's way less in this than he is in uh, f- future projects. Yeah, and I thought it was just the right amount because, again, he is the narrator, as you say, and it starts with him talking about his own life. So you really get a sense of him as a person and how much he cares about this, but he doesn't overpower it. So you're saying that you thought less is more? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying in those exact words. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Uh, you any any other particular uh, personas, you know, oddball presences in this movie that struck you? Uh, no, no, I think we mentioned them. You know, the I think we mentioned the major ones uh, in this case, uh, theater guy, yeah. industrial video tourism guy. And uh, of course, uh, you know, there is that like old lobbyist, like uh, for, you know, who's on the Roger Smith side of things. Who's yeah. like, well, your town's fucked too bad. That's how life is. You I mean, know? I kind of like that guy in a way because, you know, Michael Moore keeps obviously trying to challenge him like, well, but what about this? Don't yeah, you feel like, like this is a moral problem? And he's like, no, no, yeah. no. I mean, he just is straight on right. his talking corporations. Point. They don't know anything to anyone. And then he gets laid off by the corporation. Yeah. But I, I, I like that. Whereas Roger Smith, of course, he doesn't get to interview, but whatever footage he sees of him, you know, he's telling that story about Christmas and he still tries to project this image of himself as being benevolent, even though he isn't. But the lobbyist has no such illusions. Right. And he, you know, more gets the one question with Roger Smith, which we see. And um, that's he's always at an arm's length. So, yeah. And that's a, to be expected. I mean, I think that's part of why the, the theatrics of trying to interview him maybe get criticized a little because you know that there's no way he's going to actually get that interview. And he knows it too. You know, he's not going into those buildings expecting to actually talk to. Didn't he, didn't he, was it the big one or didn't he get like Phil Knight or something that had a Nike in one of them or something? I mean, maybe later on when he was himself a celebrity, but at this point when he's a nobody and not only is he a nobody, but he's a muckraker who's doing, you know, negative things. He knows that they're not going to give him that interview and he's just using it as fodder for the documentary and it's it's good but you know you could argue that some of that is a little disingenuous there's a, a podcast i listened to called the dream and season one was all about like mlms and multi-level marketing and amway and there's a good segment in this film about the amway yes lady, the so. amway thing that is a good one i wanted to mention yeah uh which of course is a is a scam horror, it's a cult i yeah. mean essentially i was actually like a few months ago, I was at a, a coffee shop working and I'm overhearing these two women next to me talking. And I was 
convinced that they there's no way that this these women are not cult members the way that they're talking and then i was googling some of the like specific terms that they were mentioning and of course they were amway people but just the way the way that they talk about the the personas of their leaders and things like that it's just it's horrifying yeah when i was going through my uh like uh custody battle and everything and i was broke and like i had a friend who's like you know hey you know you like he's like i'm gonna retire when i'm 30 i'm like oh that sounds good i'd like to do that he's like well you you want to come learn how to do it and I, like at first i just met with him and they wouldn't give me like any details they're like read this book and i would read the book and then they're like you know they would just never tell me what it is and i'm like what the fuck is going on here and then they made me go to one of the meetings and of course it was like an amway meeting and i was just like nah this is I don't care to be a five diamond seller or something like that. Yeah. And it's just another predatory thing. It's an example of, you know, there's a vacuum in the town because this giant employer leaves and who comes in are people like that who just take advantage of, of people who are desperate because they have no jobs. And uh, you know, that poor lady who is giving the Amway demonstration and showing Michael Moore, his colors or whatever, you know, that, she's not on a path to success. And I had mentioned like, you know, when I had come back to Vegas during the uh, recession and I mean, I feel like that's an apt um, comparison in that, like that's how much the auto making industry meant to Flint, right? Like yeah. if one day someone said, Hey, we're going to take all the casinos and we're going to move them to Mexico. We would not exist as a city, right? Now. Right. You know, we'd be screwed. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's kind of what, what happened here is that they, move the factories to Mexico where the labor was cheaper and then they would invest in other companies and, you know, uh, build more factories out of the country and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the union is already dead or in the pocket of the corporation. So there was just, man, that town was just decimated. Yeah. I mean, clearly, even though certainly not everybody worked at the auto plant, like, closing that that was the lifeblood of the town yeah yeah and that's the point of this movie and i think it, it comes across very clearly how about um when money magazine names it the worst place in america to live yeah and I and uh and the town residents they hold a uh a rally to show them that they're not the guy on stage is like, we got a PGA tour event. Yeah. And parks. That is a really sad moment because it's clear that it is a terrible place to live. And in a weird way, I mean, although I'm sure Michael Moore has Flint pride, in a weird way, the, the pride in Flint is even more pathetic than the outrage. And at the rally, they play My Hometown by Bruce Springsteen, which oh. which is ironic, uh, much like when Reagan played Born in the USA right. for his campaign rally, because my hometown's all about a kid. Uh, you know, a guy's hometown that was young and vibrant or vibrant and alive when he was young and now is decrepit and dying and it's time to get out. Yeah, lots of irony going on in this movie. <laughs> oh. And and I'm glad also we could mention. It made sense, again. Josh. It did. It did. You are absolutely right. It made sense. I um, didn't just throw out a Springsteen no, thing because no, I love the boss. No, no, you didn't. That is true. I mean, you Western do love the stars boss. available yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so should we rate this film out of uh, five slaughtered bunnies? <laughs> yeah, sure. Five skinned and uh, stuck bunnies. Yes. Four for me. Four. Yeah. I'm going to give it a three and a half. I think uh, I think it's quite good. I, I guess I just am not. I'm not always 100% on board with Michael Moore, but 
as much as I can be, I am with this movie. Dave, have you ever been hit in the head with a lead pipe? No, I haven't. Have you seen this movie? I think I did uh, a long time ago. Are you sure you've never been hit in the head with a lead pipe? <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dave. So uh, we'll uh, come back and talk about the legacy of Roger and me. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season, we've been talking about the films of 1989, and this episode is all about our documentary pick, Michael Moore's Roger and Me. And I mean, we, we've talked a bit about what the legacy is, because it's, I mean, this is, I want to say, if not the most influential documentary of all time, one of the top, like, three or four most influential documentaries ever made. I think you're right. I think probably this, Don't Look Back, right? The Dylan one. Nanook of the North. Well, yeah, because that's what the 30s or something. <laughs> the first, yeah, the yeah. 20s, maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure. And then, yeah, maybe there would be something a little. Yeah, more I mean, more. there's some other stuff more recently, but I mean, you can see the influence of this movie in such a variety Every, of ways. It, it changed the the way documentaries are made. Yeah. And you know, Moore is very liberal, and now there's a whole conservative branch of uh, documentary filmmaking which tries to do what he does on the other side and at least from a humor standpoint, I would say, does not <laughs> accomplish that. Right. But. but I think what's amazing is that even, so the people who like are the literal opposite of him ideologically are still copying him right. stylistically. And they hate him so much. Yes. They hate him and yet they're influenced by him. Yeah. They would not exist without him. I mean, and even even going beyond films into things like The Daily Show. The Daily Show is a great example. Yeah. I mean, he had a couple of shows like um before right like tv, TV nation yeah. yeah and it was it was the he big think was it? i know the big one was his that next was thing. a film yeah uh, but no yeah he had a couple of shows that i remember that he was trying to do some crazy stuff like you know letterman meets uh politics style stuff right i remember watching tv nation like as a kid possibly before you know i was saying earlier that maybe i saw bowling for columbine first but I think TV Nation might be the first Michael Moore thing I saw just because I was always watching network TV as a kid. Yeah, The Awful Truth was the other one. There you go, thinking. yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, he did make a sequel to this, which... Oh, yeah, which is a, not a feature film. Right, uh, it was on PBS. Called Pets or Meat, speaking the of the, Flint, the yeah. bunny slaughter. I should watch that. You yeah, I haven't it. seen that either. But, um, I mean, in a way, it sort of feels like almost every Michael Moore movie is a sequel to this in that it's just an expansion of his thought process here. The Michael Moore universe. Yes. So we agree that the Marvel films would not exist without, without Michael Moore. Yeah, I don't know if he's quite that influential. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he also stayed in the same style, that basically every documentary that he makes is made the same way that this was where he is with more polish though. with more polish and also with more Michael Moore, where he is a central figure. He's narrating, he's on camera and it's got a lot of humor and a lot of these juxtapositions of, of misery and uh, wealth and a lot of him accosting people who don't really necessarily have the answers to his questions. Um, and I think what seems really, really fresh here can, you know, got kind of ground down and tiresome over the course of his next seven, eight, whatever movies. Becomes a whole different conversation, right? Because it's like he's had developed such a following and, um, you know, his fans want, want him and his storytelling, right? So, I mean, I guess, uh, like, 
is it's like telling Woody Allen not to star in his movies, right? You know? Yeah. But I mean, I think the difference here is that Michael Moore, at least theoretically, is trying to make a political point and achieve some change. Yeah. And like I was saying earlier, I feel like this movie could have maybe achieved something. You could come into this movie not knowing about this issue and you wouldn't know anything about Michael Moore and this movie could open your eyes to something. Whereas later Michael Moore movies, the only people who are coming to those movies are people who already know what he does, agree with his viewpoint and are just being affirmed by his films. But I think that's a little unfair because if say Bowling for Columbine was the first one, and no one had known that, right? No, no one had known what that type of movie was. They might have gone anyway because that's like, whoa, what is this? We keep hearing about this, right? So a part of it is that this was just the first one. Well, yeah, that's. So you, yeah, so I'm saying, like if like, this had not been the first movie, then it wouldn't have had, like, yeah. But but I mean, you're saying like, oh well, you know, they're the later ones don't have the same effect because he's in it more. I'm saying I don't think that matters. I'm saying if Bowling for Columbine had come first and that he was in it as much as he was, or if he was in this as much as he's in that, it wouldn't have mattered. People would have still come to see this. Yeah. You're just saying that now it's just his fans. Right. And it is, it is just his fans. And you can't like change history in order to like make the movie more effective is what I'm saying is that instead of oh. realizing that and trying to sort of pivot in a way he just doubles down on doing exactly what he does. Yeah. Well, you're much more clear with that point the second time okay. around. Well, I apologize. Then I'm glad we've uh, cleared it up. Um, I feel good about it too. Yes, thank you. But um, yeah, I mean, and I've I've thought some of his later movies are effective. Some are more effective than others. I think I think part of it too, and this is not just about this being his first movie, is that you can tell he has this strong personal connection here to this story. And in a lot of his later movies, it just doesn't have that. Well, he's talking about something he loves here, his hometown, right? right? He clearly doesn't love George W. Bush, you know? No, so. no, no. I mean, I'm not saying he has to love, I mean, he doesn't love Roger Smith, but his antagonism towards Roger Smith is rooted in this deeply personal experience. Fuck Roger Smith, Josh. I'm not, no, I'm not saying anything <laughs> positive about Roger Smith. I'm saying it doesn't have to be about, he doesn't have to love George Bush or love capitalism or whatever to make a movie about it. I think he has to, it would help if he could ground those stories. If he's going to make it a personal movie, is he, if he's going to make it a movie where he is a personal presence in right, it, at make the a whole personal time, story to make it a personal story. And he just doesn't do that. That's fair. Um, and yet at the same time, he doesn't seem willing to make a movie that is not about him. Like he wouldn't direct a movie that he isn't appearing in on camera and narrating. Like right. that, that would never that, happen. And that also, we saw that in all of his television shows as well, but Hey, that's his style. That's what he does. That's who he is. And, um, you know, um, I think also part of the legacy is documentary as entertainment. Yeah. So this is, this is that kind of, um, this is that kind of bridge to, uh, what was and what has become. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, going back to the reviews that we were saying that, you know, the idea that people expect documentaries to not be entertaining, that's really not the case anymore. Yeah, and, I think you're right. And people maybe even a little too much demand documentaries to be entertaining. And some documentaries uh, kind of shoot themselves in the foot by trying too hard for that. I think so. 
you get in the way of whatever you're documenting. Right. Exactly. But, but also, I think that that critique was a little uh, a little general in that there weren't uh, there were clearly great docu entertaining documentaries. Yeah, well. absolutely. I think so. And I think maybe it's 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 more than documentaries trying to be entertaining. It was maybe documentaries trying to be funny. Documentaries trying to be clever and subjective. Or- yeah, and subjective too. And like all of that stuff can be good. There's great documentaries that Michael Moore didn't make that are funny, that are witty, that are about somebody's personal perspective. But I think it's easy to take it too far. And people who aren't as talented as Michael Moore think that that's a way to just make a movie that people will see. Jason is nodding in agreement with my very uh, smart Hmm. point. Yeah. You can't hear it, but he's really thoughtfully (laughs) nodding. Yeah. we talked a little about... Uh, this has been cathartic. I mean, it's not a legacy of the movie per se, but but Flint... Flint. Uh, well, there's some stats we should go over Okay, there. you got some stats? I, I did some stat work there, Josh. All right, let's hear it. Well, you know, in 1978, there was 80,000 auto workers. When Moore was kind of making this movie, or the few years after, the 1992, there were 50,000, and now they're down to 5,000. Yeah, and uh, they still don't have clean water. I don't know how that's possible. That's that is completely ridiculous and a, a blight on our society that we let our own countrymen go without clean water and women and children. Yes, it is. It is sad. And I think you watch this movie and you know that it was thirty years ago. And if maybe you haven't been keeping up with everything in Flint, you would think, well, things have to be better there now, and just bad thing i mean they had financial scandals with the local government and just nothing nothing it really seems like roger smith killed this town like honestly doesn't it like yeah this was the beginning of the end for this town. yeah and i mean i'm sure if you are from flint or if you know more about flint you could point to other issues that have contributed over time, but this does seem like the, yeah, we don't want to hear about those issues. (laughs) No, I mean, there's a movie about, I think this is, it's clearly the biggest issue here. So yeah, maybe Michael Moore and he's gone back to Flint. I think in, uh, was it in Fahrenheit 11, nine, there's a segment about the Flint water crisis. He always kind of bases something in Flint. I feel like, um, and I don't, I didn't see, I didn't see anything new he was working on. Uh, no, I don't know. I'm sure he's got something. He's often, especially right. lately, because he's so well known, he does these things in secret because he doesn't want people to find out and be ready for him. Yeah, he's Borat. Yeah, <laughs> he's you the know, Borat of Flint. The Michigan. truth is, Borat is another movie that was influenced by this. I think that's fair. Yeah, even mockumentaries take so much of their their yeah. cues. From Why aren't movie. people doing more Michael Moore impressions and less Borat impressions? Yeah, so. they should be. And I mean, something like documentary now, you know. I think uh, they've not done a Michael Moore parody, but... uh, It would be ripe for it. It would be, and it would really fit in with their whole uh, mission statement. Um, And then the other thing, I think there was a statistic, and I didn't note down this number, but GM stock definitely went down after this movie came out. Right, right. Yeah, I I saw that as well. So it had some effect. Not certainly the effect that Michael Moore hoped it would, but it, it, it did have an effect beyond just people seeing it and being entertained by it. I wonder if he really thought, like, I'm going to make a documentary and this whole town is going to turn around. I mean, (laughs) probably not. But I can imagine, like, you know, daydreaming about that, like in in sort of the the pie in the sky scenario. Like, what if? Yeah. You know, I mean, what if these Richies had a heart? Right. I mean, he's probably 
he's smart enough to know that that won't happen. But at the same time, idealistic enough that like he wouldn't be putting all his effort into this movie if he didn't think it could accomplish something. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so any other final thoughts on Roger and me? A cool poster. It is a good poster. Yeah. With him trying to interview the empty chair. Oh, I was looking at the, uh, is yeah. Uh, There's, I, I mean, is there another poster? Is that, too? is that the chair or the building that's like going to eat him? Oh, no, I think that must be a different one. I'm okay. thinking there's a poster of him like pointing a microphone at a chair that's empty because, of course, Roger Smith is not there. Oh. But uh, I guess there's a poster of a building eating him as I'm well. I'm going to look that up. Maybe that's completely wrong. I think I saw that poster, too. I think. I yeah, I mean, there's usually, you know, movies have a lot of different posters. I think the, the chair thing was what was on the cover of uh, the DVD or of the, uh, the online rental version of it. But um, I'm sure there's another poster. So we're about to find out, Josh. I oh, there we- it is. Yeah, here it is. So what is the other poster? It's a giant. He's trying to interview. Yeah, the giant. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Like, I, I don't know if I've seen that. But yeah, that is a very uh, apt illustration of the film. With That's the, the one I remember. The factory as a monster trying to attack him. Yeah. So and, uh, you know, uh, corporate America is still a monster trying to attack Michael Moore, probably. Among the rest of us. Yes. So that's Roger and me, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on the social media. You can follow us on the social media, Awesome Movie Year, Facebook and Instagram, awesomemovieyear.com, and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Jason Harris, comedy. I'm on all three of those things as one of that thing, Jason Harris Comedy or J. Harris Comedy, or on the website, just uh, still under construction for an upgrade <laughs> go for jason.com you can find me at josh bell hates everything.com on facebook at josh bell hates everything and on twitter at signal bleed and you can listen to our producer david rosen's awesome podcast piecing it together you can find piecing it together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at piecing pod and join our facebook group popcorn and puzzle pieces so what do we have for our next episode jason uh, Josh's pick, guys. Oh He's a big boy making movie picks all on his own. <laughs> the very dark uh, and still lively comedy, Heathers. Yes, uh, my favorite movie of all time. Wow! So shots fired. Glad I could pick that that we did this year. So tune in next time for Heathers. Thanks for listening to Awesome. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.